welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everyone, got a great guest for you this week, and that is Jonathan O'Keefe. So as a practicing neurologist, Jonathan saw that his impact in clinical practice was linear, i.e. you see one patient, you impact one patient, patient number doubles, impact doubles, and you start again. But instead, he wanted to combine his neurology and computer science background to impact deeper, and that was by building a startup. And so perfectly positioned to see what he describes as flaws in the system, he then set about building his company, Machine Medicine, which, has developed an AI platform for the objective measurement of disability from simple video clips, and they're doing some awesome work in Parkinson's disease to begin with. Hope you enjoy. So Jonathan, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing this morning, mate? Very well. Thank you very much for having me. It's a great pleasure. You're very welcome. Looking forward to getting into it. Obviously, we've known each other for a little while. We've uh, probably both seen each other do a few different bits and bobs and pivots and all the rest of it in the health tech space. So I'm sure there's plenty for us to talk about. And uh, we were just saying it's probably been like a couple of years since we've spoken. So plenty of water in the bridge. And I'm looking forward to getting into it. Um, Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Jonathan? Uh, in, in London, central London, where uh, I'm actually at home at the moment, but we're based in London Bridge, which is just a 20 minute walk down the road. Cool, man. So listen, the, the way that we start these podcasts is that we get guests to tell their story. And obviously, we've, uh, we've had similar paths coming from medicine and yeah. out of medicine and into the entrepreneurship space and into health tech. And so I think it'd be really valuable for our audience, mate, if you could uh, tell us a bit of your story. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, we, we've talked about it once or twice before and, um, and you know, it was a huge kind of life decision coming into sort of med tech entrepreneurship because I guess for the, you know, I always, I come from a, I come from a medical family. Like my grandfather was a surgeon, I have an aunt that's a, 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 um, a surgeon, I have an uncle that's a GP, I have my dad's a cardiologist, my mum's a psychiatrist, I've got a brother who's a neurosurgeon, all that, right? And so we're a medical family. So it was kind of always kind of expected that I'd probably go into medicine. And sure enough, you know, I did a philosophy degree to start with, but really became super interested in uh, the sort of the brain sciences and the, and the intersection between um, computers and brains in particular, and the whole field of, of, of machine brain interfacing, be happy to chat about. Um, uh, but headed off on and headed off to medical school after that, and and uh, you know was following the, the career path onto um, you know a cl- academic clinician kind of uh, career path. Yeah. And I guess you know in my kind of um, I've, I'm 41 now, um, but when I was in my I, I went to, in my early 30s, went to do my PhD, and uh, and and I guess I, I found academia enjoyable. Um, but also found it a little bit frustrating that we these sort of interesting sort of techniques and, uh, and approaches we were using for scientific questions didn't really, if when you looked at them in the sort of cold light of day, look like it would be that impactful in the sort of very near future. And likewise, in my clinical practice, I really felt enormously frustrated by the what I would now call like the lack of scalability. At the time, I didn't really sort of think about uh, sort of scalable work and, and the difference between sort of uh, doing something that can actually be, be, be built into a scalable product. Um, but I remember just sort of intuitively being enormously frustrated by the kind of cyclic nature of, say, a clinic 
or you see one patient start at the beginning, take the history, you know, and then and yeah. hopefully help that person. But, but then, you know, the next patient comes through the door and you do exactly the same thing. So, so I, I was sort of somewhat disillusioned, I would say. And, uh, and then, uh, and then I started to think about, well, you know, what can I, what could, what would be a way for me to kind of marry my interests in, in the technical fields that I'm, I'm interested in machine learning and computational neuroscience and my ongoing clinical interest. And then, it, and then, so I just gradually kind of started eyeing what was happening in the sort of commercial sector. And also I think from an academic perspective, um, a lot of the work that was coming out of uh, industrial labs, such as IBM's Watson, and uh, you know the, the stuff that was happening at uh, DeepMind, um, it, it you know really persuaded me. Look, there, there really is a lot of extremely impactful stuff happening here, and and if you leverage it correctly, you can um, you can achieve um, you know orders of magnitude greater impact through through the sort of uh, the commercial sector if you if you do it right. I just want I just want to jump in and ask you a question here, and and this is really just based on my own interest of you doing a philosophy degree prior to medicine. I'm really, really interested myself on a personal level in philosophy. I'm, a, I'm not an avid reader of any major um, philosophers or anything like that, but I do, under, I, do, I do enjoy reading and watching and hearing about philosophy just for the mm. way it makes me think about things and the way it makes me question things about you know my life my work what i'm doing what i want all of those different things i'm super interested to ask you what did a degree in philosophy prior to medicine do do you think for the way that you thought about medicine yeah it's a great question I th- and i think what it what it does is i think it gives you self-confidence in a way about your own kind of reasoning yeah whereas in, in, in a lot of subjects you actually you know you study the subject uh, in in philosophy one way of thinking about it is at least you, you study the process of reasoning and identifying things like you know what what's a valid argument what's a sound argument what's the difference between a valid and a sound argument and so when you come to sort of uh, considering kind of lines of reasoning which might not be conventionally endorsed <laughs> that's yeah then I think it gives more self-confidence. And definitely, I think that was kind of helpful for me when I was taking the plunge, as it were, and, and leaving a, a training number in neurology. Um, yeah, know, interesting. This is, not, this is not crazy. And I'm being conscious of the fact that actually a lot of the viscosity that I felt kind of around actually taking the plunge and, and jumping out of medicine was really kind of, uh, uh, as it were, environmental. And it was like, you know, my colleagues, their attitude to the idea of just dropping out of medicine, starting a business was, that was, you know, it was anathema to them, but that in itself wasn't a, a sort of strong argument for not doing it. Right. Yeah. I get sense. that. I get that. And I, I, re- I really do relate to that because I would say in my, in my twenties, I, I didn't have a framework as to how I was actually living. I was just sort of living and doing things. I'd, I, yeah. I, I, I sort of blinked through medical school and I was a doctor and then I, was 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 trained to be an east i didn't really know how i'd found myself there and i didn't have this framework of like i really want to do this because and i was kind of lost because of that yeah. and I, I didn't 
and, 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 you know, I wasn't, I've said this on many episodes, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily getting the same joy that everybody was else was getting from the clinical side of it and, and the scientific side of it. And I, I did find myself lost, but I, you know, having not studied philosophy and actually, interestingly, that is when I did get into it because I really found it interesting to then find my own reasoning and find my own framework. It was only then that I started to realize, actually, these are things I care about. These are things that I enjoy. And I became so much more self-aware, which when you talk about, you know, taking the plunge and all those different things, I, I certainly didn't plunge anywhere. I, I very much crept my way out of medicine through fellowships and yeah. skilling up and building network and building personal brand and then only having a really firm branch to hold on to when I, when I stepped out. Did I eventually sort of plunge as you will? But yeah, I get that, man. I, I get that, that need for self-awareness and, and questioning your own reasons for things as a means of ending up in health tech, quite frankly, to actually relate this in some way to the health tech podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Um, so yeah, tell me more, man. So yeah, you, you, you were questioning yeah, your, you, you were questioning yeah. yourself. You were, you were, you know, interested in this machine interfacing and all these different things going through medicine, mm-hmm. I suppose. Uh, what happened next? I guess, you know, I, I, I don't want to over egg it. You know, I didn't quite just, I didn't just kind of like drop my stethoscope in the middle of the world. <laughs> walk out kind of like sort of random <laughs> or like kind of um what's that? I, don't know, I can't remember something like yeah it wasn't quite that dramatic um but um but uh but i guess one of the things it was kind of odd actually how it happened because i actually got um i used to run a lot and i developed a a, a thing called um uh, well hip dysplasia it was actually developmental hip dysplasia so it was it was there since i wow. was a child but it, it manifested and became Apparently, essentially had a very kind of arthritic um, hip, and I had to actually have a, a, an operation that that went wrong. So I ended up I ended up uh, taking uh, quite a lot of uh, uh, sick leave and, and being basically um, sort of holed up with a, a pair of crutches and, and and actually properly disabled. Uh, but and the cool thing about that, well, if there is anything cool about it, was it gave me a, 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 some time to start investigating things yeah. uh, that I perhaps wouldn't have had. If I had, uh, if I'd just been, you know, pursuing the sort of busy training job um, that I was that I was on, you know, so that that gave me pause for thought. Of course, you know, that did get treated, and then I was I was actually I was due to go back to work uh, as as a clinician, um, and so and and you know, it was at that point that I had to decide, you know, is this what do I really want to go back, or or is have the things I've been learning about and doing, are they do they like as you said, you know, do they feel more satisfying than actually being, you know on the ward in clinical practice. Yeah. And, and you know what, when you're on that treadmill and you just keep going, mm-hmm. you often don't have that time to reflect. Yeah. And it's, it's such a common story, mate, that like uh, people that I speak to that have had, and I don't just mean this in medicine, but any sort of either dramatic career change or indeed the, the bit just before they lent into entrepreneurship, yeah. there tends to be, often this extra capacity for reflection, just that extra time to think things through, make your plan, decide how you're going to do things. And for me, that was through those fellowship years because mm-hmm. it was, it was, you know, arms length bodies to, to DH. So it was like nine to five, literally five Oh one, everyone's out of the office. And so actually yeah. when you've got an extra five hours before you go to sleep, you actually do have yeah. time to think about things and you give yourself time for, again, for that self-awareness knowledge that it's, yeah, it's 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 so important. I think we, arguably that's what we've seen in COVID nineteen. You know, I started a business at the start of COVID nineteen with all that extra time on my hands, and 
are, you know, that loads of people have done the same. We've, we've found new energy for innovation. We found new, new ideas, new ways of working, all these different, like it seems that this extra time to reflect has led to so much, you know? Yeah. And it's so, and so, so lacking for a, a, an actual sort of jogging doctor. Yeah. One of the big, one of the big problems, I think. Yeah, definitely. Um, so tell me more. How did you move out? Um, well, yeah, so I was, I was basically, I was basically disabled and, and unable to work. So I, um, I joined the entrepreneur, um, well, I applied for the, a, a friend said to me, hey, there's this thing called entrepreneur first, um, you should apply for it. Um, and so I took a look at it and it was like the day before the deadline. And so I okay, I'll just chuck an application in and then, and then had an interview and, uh, and, they, and then they offered me a place. And so I, I went and, and, and did that. And, you know, it was kind of a roller coaster because to be brutally honest, I had pretty much no idea what the hell I was doing. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, in terms of commercial, you know, I was, you know, I was aware of what I was aware of. I knew that kind of, you know, I'd read a bunch of books about businesses and I knew that, you know, the idea essentially was that you had to be solving problems. If you were solving problems, then, then, you know, you were probably doing something that was valuable and you could probably turn it into business. That was the kind, but that was the kind of depth of my reasoning. Right. So, I, so when I started entrepreneur first, I was looking for like, you know, what's a big medical problem that mm. I want to work on and where's, you know, and, I, and, I, and we identified kind of this issue of um, people falling and, and sort of breaking their hips and stuff as being a, a big medical issue. And I, and I also felt that kind of motor assessment was something that was being done very badly um, and, and that we could probably identify people who were at risk and intervene. Um, in this area um, quite effectively, given the sort of stage of technological development in particular in computer vision and stuff. But, you know, uh, and so we, we, we managed coming out of Entrepreneur First and that met a co-founder who, you know, left uh, not that long after it, but, you know, it was, was, it was there for the, for the first part of it. And, uh, and we started working on this problem, but the first six months was just basically uh, learning that essentially all the sort of the, the basic assumptions that I've made about how this business would work and the market I was trying to go into were wrong. Mm. You know? And that, so that was sort of sobering. Um, but then on the flip side, it kind of you know, made me kind of reconsider uh, and, and sort of gather my thoughts and, and start looking at other approaches. And, and then after that, we, you know, within about nine months, another three months, uh, after the first six months, I, I found something that I thought, yeah, this actually this could actually work and, and we could get some real traction here. And then things went a lot better. But those first nine months were just, you know, six months of entrepreneur first and then three months kind of uh, in the wilderness, basically on my own, uh, until I sort of started to sort of find a new groove. Yeah, character building, mate, I suppose. And I suppose, that, you know, for the people that don't know or, or might not know, it's been mentioned actually a couple of times on this podcast now, as you can imagine, that Entrepreneur First is an accelerator that individuals can join yeah. that can then go and, and meet co-founders and they tend to focus on domain experts and technical experts. Mm. So if you're one, you're likely to meet the other. And I think, it, it you know, it is extremely effective, like no doubt, with the amount of companies that they push out yeah. that... um it obviously connected you with that technical expert initially. So how, how did you, and uh, you know, there'll be people listening that will probably want to apply to EF or as it's called, or, or other similar accelerators to do similar things. When you, when you made that application, did you have a firm idea of like, 
I don't know, either I want to be an entrepreneur, I want to run my own business, or was it I have, I want to solve this problem, or was it a more general, I think this is going to be the best career move for me, that I'll learn some new skills, or was it something else? Like, what were your, what were your thoughts when you were going into that? Because I kind of, this is loaded in a way, because I almost want to debunk the idea that you need this absolute ludicrous drive to be the next Jeff Bezos to join an accelerator or start a business or that you need to raise a hundred million in funding or anything like that. Because I actually almost perceive that journey that you went on. Well, you almost mentioned it, right? For six months, nine months, it was pure learning. And that's kind of how I think about Mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. If you are in the fortunate position, you can justify that time out of your career. But what were your thoughts going into that? So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess, I, I had I, I, I decided I think several years earlier that um, that I wanted to start a business like about two three two or three years before that and the thing I, I, I did it was kind of it was kind of a weird experience and, but kind of an epiphany I went on this uh, I was at Cambridge doing my PhD and I went on this um, sort of program that they had where they took you away to like a kind of holiday like kind of holiday resort sort of place for, for two or three days yeah. and they made you do a number of exercises that were some 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 of them were kind of cringy teamwork exercises you know uh, trust sort of based things and stuff but there was one particular one which was where they they asked you to kind of like imagine five years from now and imagine your your, your life has gone sort of to plan and you're doing kind of the ideal job whatever that is I want, and it was kind of mental exercise. They wanted to say, so I want you to imagine it's like, say, a Friday, it's a Friday morning, and start not when you're at work doing whatever amazing thing you did. Start like where you are at home. Like, where do you live? Do you live in the countryside? Do you live in the city? Um, is, are you on your own in the house? Do you have a family? Do you have pets? All that, that minute detail, like what you actually live in and do all day. And, um, and when I did that, and I thought about the kind of problems I wanted to be solving, the kind of place that environment I wanted to be in there was there was no you know clinic in the hospital there and it was basically you know I could see myself walking into an engineering firm doing exciting and challenging engineering wow in in the med tech sector and that's from that moment on I was I was committed and one of the other things they did was they they made you set um like a sort of pre-date a postcard and then, uh, and then send it to yourself and th- that you gave it to them and then they would send it to you in, in like, I don't know, six or nine months or something. And on that postcard, I'd written, have you started machine medicine yet? <laughs> and like, so that would come to you back kind of, uh, and, and actually I, ha- I hadn't, but I had got the, uh, I had got the, the URL www.machinemedicine.com. So I, I knew, I, I knew I wanted to, to start that. And I, and I had also, I had also like started a sort of side hustle with a friend who was sort of a computer scientist where we were basically, you know, trying to deal with this issue of, of locuming and the scheduling for locums and mm. stuff. So I was trying to do that. But, but one of the, one of the first things I realized when I joined entrepreneur first, they take you away on this kind of like orientation weekend right at the beginning of the program was that, um, you know, they, I think, uh, you know, Matt Clifford who, who runs it, uh, gave us a talk and in it, he said, you know, building a, basically building a business is really tough. So if you're going to, and building a fish, fish and chip shop business is not that uh, uh, much easier than, you know, building a, you know, a med tech company. So 
uh, if you're going to build a business, um, you know, go for go for gold, go for you know, some, mm. make it the business that you want to, you really dream of, right? Don't just settle for, you know. And I wasn't really that interested in uh, scheduling local sort of uh, shifts, you know. I'm, I just it seemed to me there was a business opportunity there. But when I got to Entrepreneur First, that gave me the kind of, I guess it gave me the kind of ambition to think, right? Well, if I'm going to do this, I want to make it the in my dream company, that that engineering firm that that does push the envelope, that, that does the most ambitious and challenging work in med tech. So, yeah. That's awesome, man. And it sounds, it sounds like you, you, you can hear it in your voice almost, you know, this passion and this drive to, for the life that you want. And that's, that's really interesting because it must, it must have then in those early days really motivated you to, to, to work hard because you know, there's so much about do what you love. And that's another thing that kind of is starting to grate on me, this idea that you can just do what you love. And it's like, yeah, there's a lot of nuance in that though, because you, in order to get to the extremely privileged position where you just do what you love, which I'm not convinced does exist because it is a moving target, but there is a lot of, whether you want to say grind or hustle, you know, I hate what's up, but like, a lot of hard work to get there and you, and you have to, you have to really put that in and you have to have these times where you feel really uncomfortable and you have to have these times where you, where you do work so hard that you're tired and there's late nights and early mornings, but it's an interesting exercise. That thought exercise that you mentioned is super interesting because yeah. you know, as you're, as you're saying that, you know, I'm doing that exercise and I'm thinking, you know, how close am I to that? Am I actually on the right path to that? And it, and it is extremely motivating to know that 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 can be that can be the end goal at some point. But listen, I want to talk. I want to talk now about. I want to talk about the idea for machine medicine, and because of because of your interest in this with the engineering and the technology, I actually want you to lean into the tech when you start talking about this stuff. You've mentioned things like human computer interaction. You've mentioned machine interfacing. What was your vision for this? What, what, what problem are you looking to solve? What technology were you excited to use? What lens did yeah. you come at this from? Let's talk about the early days of building a tech solution in health. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it goes all the way back to my philosophy degree, I guess. <laughs> when I was, I was thinking, you know, what really excited me was kind of this interface between uh, machines and brains. Like how, because it, it, I mean, it, it kind of gets to the fundamental philosophical question, you know, kind of, the Delphic injunction to know thyself. Um, so what, in, the Delphic injunction, did yeah, you say? in the Oracle of Delphi, you know, the, the, uh, in Delphi, where, where the sort of famous Oracle used to be, there was an inscription, and it was the, you know, know, know thyself was the sort of fundamental um, instruction to, wow. um, for people to, to follow. And, and it's kind of, you know, that's, um, in a way, you know, if we can, our, our nervous systems are kind of, whatever we are, you know, that's it, right? Whatever, yeah. whatever a nervous system is, is essentially what constitutes our being. And, and then there's this, you know, from a, that's a sort of philosophical perspective, I guess. But, and, and this nervous system is an ancient um, product of an evolutionary process that, you know, incrementally built it up to, you know, what's quite an extraordinary entity. And, and yet in the 20th century, we saw this extraordinary technological development of um, uh, machines that were capable of at least some of the sort of computational capabilities yeah. that uh, impressed me and, and many other people about brains. So I thought, you know, this is just the most the most interesting uh, sort of area of, of, of scientific and technical and human endeavor. And so, you know, that, that was kind of, 
And that was why I thought, I thought right, I'm going to go into the brain sciences and, and medicine will be a good way to do it. And I'll become a neurologist. Yeah, that'll, that'll be the way to do it. But and that's still ultimately where, you know, where, where I'm really interested and where machine medicine is, is, is sort of um, ultimately headed for, um, if I have anything to do with it. Um, and, and, but then the question, of course, is like, you know, if we, if we, if we look at this sort of brave new world of kind of uh, restoring neurological function with, uh, you know, at least in part with, with machines and what, what people would call, you know, neuromodulation or, or electroceuticals, something like that, um, then, um, you know, what is, what is that going to look like? And how do we start building a business like today that will, will, will be correctly positioned to be a big part of that story? You know, as it, you know, it's already happening, but you know, it's, it, you know, what it is now compared to what it's going to be in 10, 15 years, because I think, you know, two very different things. So, so, you know, the difficulty for me, the main difficulty for me is uh, over the last few years has been, how do we start building a business now and how do we start um, pushing it in the correct direction and, you know, getting, taking those steps on the stepping stones to that bigger kind of vision in, in a kind of, you know, productive and profitable and, viable way and and that's why you know where so where would that kind of makes if you think about where, what we do now it kind of makes sense from that perspective because what what we do now is we have a a motor assessment platform that's essentially used in deep brain stimulation clinics during the the post the pre-op the pre-operative uh assessment is performed and that's a kind of a, a motor assessment that people do where they they come in off medic people with parkinson's disease come in off medication um, they have a motor assessment. It, the videos and, and the assessment scores get recorded through our product, Kelvin PD, and then and then they get given their medication, and that assessment gets performed again, uh, again recorded through our, our, our product, uh, Kelvin PD. And on the basis of how much improvement they show, uh, they'll go uh, for um, deep brain stimulation or, or not. There's a few other sort of uh, boxes that need to be ticked. Um, in order for that to happen, but that's basically the kind of how it works. And what that's wow. doing for us is it's generating. We initially that was just a sort of a data management task that we were solving, but it was a problem that people had. You know, the nurses and doctors that were doing these assessments had, you know, m many uh, dozens of videos to manage and also clinical scores to manage. So the first thing we did was just go into this this context and solve that data management problem for them. But we did it in such a way that, that solving that problem generated for us uh, labeled video clips of patients performing particular activities with clinician ratings attached to them. And that's, and that's, that's a labeled data set that then from a, from a machine learning perspective allows us to apply a group of, of algorithms um, called supervised learning. And, uh, and that's you know, probably the most uh, powerful branch of, of machine learning at the moment. You know, someone might contest that point, but but certainly having labeled data is, is often an extremely useful thing. Yeah. So, and so I guess that's a, an example of where my background in machine learning um, kind of, uh, and my awareness of a, my understanding of a clinical problem allowed us to kind of uh, find a solution for the practical problem, which would also do something very useful from a machine learning and a data perspective. And we, and it's, as a, and we now have a, you know, a data set, which is, which is not static every time a, a clinician uses it. They generate more labeled data for us, so, so and I think that's you know that's something that's really difficult. I think in medtech to to combine the engineering and the clinician uh, the clinical expertise into a, a sort of really useful solution. And I can't pretend you know I had it all mapped out at the start. 
I guess the most I could say is that I was able to appreciate it once we kind of evolved into that situation. Yeah, there's there's loads there's loads that's interesting here that I, that I want to chat to you about, and I think the first bit is that you're in you're in the business of by the sounds of things something that I think is an area of health tech mm. that is growing and not necessarily what you might think is the obvious one here, but I think so much of assessing a patient. So for you and I yeah. as previous clinicians, we know that, well, think of an OSCE, right? The, the you know, the, 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 the exam that we do that, that tests our ability to, uh, to, what do you call it? Um, to look at patients basically and to, and to examine patients. That's what I'm looking for. Christ, it's been a long time since it's been mentioned. Um, but the point is, you know, you go to the bedside, what's the first question you ask yourself? Do they look well or unwell? Mm. I mean, what a crude measure that yeah. is. And that's going to define kind of a bit of what you do next. Now, when you extrapolate that and you look at all the different ways, particularly, you know, in musculoskeletal or neurology, like, mm. like you're in, the way that we will think about diagnosis and examination is not very quantifiable at times. Mm. It's just, you know, how's their cerebellum? Well, you know, they're a bit shaky. <laughs> and that is extremely reductive. And I'm sure there are many neurologists that will tell me that that's completely incorrect, but like, including yourself. But like, what, what my point is by being able to actually quantify. So when a, when a, when a patient with Parkinson's comes in to see you, right. And, or, you know, somewhere where your technology is being used, what previously might happen is that people make a crude assessment as to how that, uh, whether they need brainstem stimulation or not based on various examination features or how they're moving their motor function, as you say. So, They'll make that assessment without any measurements of angles or tremor rates or, you know, any kind of quantifiable measure. And I think in health tech, there's so many examples of this. And, you know, we see there's like the guys at Vitru Health that are doing doing stuff similar with like, you know, looking at looking at motor function and, and the angles of certain things in physiotherapy. And I think what we're starting to do now in medicine and, and health tech is quantify what was previously unquantifiable. And as you've quite rightly pointed out, that creates data. It creates a real point of this is what it looked like, this is what we did, and this is what happened. And when you do that at scale, then clearly the quality of treatment gets better. And it seems to me that you're in the business of that. You're in the business of quantifying the previously unquantified and therefore you're getting the first data set on this stuff. You are being able to create the first insights on this stuff and you end up being an authority on this stuff. And again, like principles that we talk about this podcast all the time, you're as specific as brainstem stimulation for Parkinson's patients right now. You're not trying to be everything to everybody. You've said, here's the problem that I think we can solve with this bit of technology that I'm interested in. Let's yeah. have a play around at seeing if we can, which is, you know, perhaps yeah. not the purest. I wake up wanting to solve this problem. I'm going to run through 10 brick walls every single day until I solve it. It's perhaps not that purest version of that. It's a mixture of that science and art of like, I'm interested in this tech. I do know the ground floor of medicine. I think it can help here, but I need to kind of play around and pivot. But it yeah. seems like you've been on that journey and it sounds Massive. like an exciting one. Massively. And like, if you look at, if you look at, um, it kind of, sometimes it feels like a, sort of a telescope looking through the big end or the little end because we, we're, <laughs> working, we're working in Parkinson's disease, which is, kind of you know it's 
it's a, a, the second most common neurodegenerative disorder. But worldwide, it's only 10 million, 11 million people that have it, right? Something like that. So it's mm. not like you know, one of the cancers or something, right, in terms of the numbers. However, when you look at where we ultimately want to take the company, and that is into you know, a, 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 you know, a platform solution for uh, neuromodulation and the software and data layer for neuromodulation, then, then it makes a hell of a lot of sense because actually, although there's only 10 million people with Parkinson's disease, two thirds of all neuromodulation, deep brain stimulation, neuromodulation takes place in Parkinson's disease, right? So it's overwhelmingly, mm. overwhelmingly the, the predominant and most mature application of, of, of DBS. So from that perspective, it, it makes total sense for us. But you're right, it's, you know, it's, it really, it's super focused. And, um, and I read a great article, I wish I could remember the, the, um, the reference of it, but, about, and, but it was basically the, the focus of the article was, um, should you go deep first into a vertical or should you go wide uh, rapidly across lots of verticals? And the, and the thrust of the article, which I fully agree with, was that it basically depends if you're trying to do something technically challenging. If you're trying to do something that's really technically challenging, focus on a single vertical and go really deep into it and solve all those problems and then, then go horizontal and try and solve um, the analogous problems in the other verticals. If you try and go, if you try and go across many verticals uh, with, with uh, challenging technical problems, you were simply setting yourself up for failure. Um, whereas, you know, if you consider something like, you know, an e-commerce platform or something, it makes total sense to try and go as wide as you can. As yeah. Well as you can. I really like that because that actually, again, puts a bit of a framework around something that I feel is intuitively correct, but actually that really eloquently and very nicely puts it. And I think applies to quite a lot of health tech. And I think it's why in health tech, we often talk about solving one problem at a time and going deep in a vertical because the problems are so complex. And when, you know, when, when you say it's technically demanding, I, I think it is extremely technically demanding to just get adoption <laughs> to be perfectly yeah. honest um, and to actually manage to solve all sorts of problems for a certain department, which I'd quite like to talk to you about now, I guess, which mm. is getting this bought by hospitals and institutions and organizations and, mm. and actually creating a business out of this stuff. I, I suppose the, the first part of this journey though, perhaps, and correct me if I'm wrong, was probably getting investment. And uh, I don't know if you've got anything to say on that journey and, and how yeah. easy or difficult that might have been in health tech. I think it's, it's, it's challenging. And, um, and, you know, we did it in a very kind of like bumpy, hanging off the walls, and <laughs> kind of uh, getting hair slowly and, and plenty of bruises and stuff. But, uh, <laughs> but I think, uh, you know, I think fundamentally it's important to, you know, if you, if you think that a problem is really a big problem and it's valuable and you've spent many years working in it and you know the area really well, you know, you, you've got a better chance of being right than some guy in a suit that's, you know, come out of, you know, mm. MBA and, and poo-poo's um, your, your idea. And I think that was, you know, for me, that was when I was kind of in the wilderness. I had a lot of, we, were, we got a little bit of investment from Entrepreneur First, which was kind of um, something of a miracle in itself. <laughs> the state of our understanding of the market and what we were doing. Um, but then, then, then it was another sort of nine or 10 months of just getting knocked back and not getting, not being able to raise a seed round. But actually, and actually, you know, there was a mixture. Part of it, part of it, part of the criticisms that I had were totally valid. You know about you know you, 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 we're trying to sell to for example care homes and they just 
these people didn't have money to spend and they weren't incentivized to solve yeah. what we were trying to solve. And many people said that to us and they were right. You know? And it took me quite a while to acknowledge that. On the other hand, um, the, the uh, motor assessment being uh, sort of absolutely deplorably performed and, and yet at the same time being a huge um, element of what doctors do all day and every day. Um, I was totally right about that and, and still, still believe myself and have good, good evidence of that now. And so, you know, be able to be able to sort of take criticism and acknowledge what's valid and, 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 and you know, make changes according to that. But to, to stay true to, to what you, you know, if you really believe that it's a big and valuable problem, just stick at it. Um, because, you know, I think one of the common things in, in med tech is for people to, for example, with a recent hype in, in sort of hype or the recent sort of success in AI and, and machine learning, a lot of companies come to uh, med tech and they look for machine learning problems, right? And they build up mm -hmm. businesses around machine learning problems in, in med tech and, you know, Maybe that maybe there are some good businesses that can come out of it. Um, you know, if you, I, mean, I think you see that with the, the very, very large number of radiology companies that now exist. Right? There's going to be a, 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 my I prophesy that in five years' time there's going to be a lot of carcasses because you know one yeah. or two companies are going to win out. And I suspect maybe maybe in many cases the incumbents like IBM already have a lot of traction in this area. Yeah. Um, but uh, but we'll see. But, you know, it's very obvious if you come to uh, med medicine as a machine learning kind of sort of expert and you look at the problems that exist, things like diagnosis and, and sort of radiology uh, exams sort of stand out as clear machine learning problems. And that's just, that's just not the same as identifying the big problems in medicine, right? I mean, if I had to, if I had to identify the biggest problem in medicine, I would say it's the um, uh, from a sort of uh, from a sort of uh, technical perspective, it's the um, lack of interoperability between uh, EHRs. So that's the, if I yeah. had to cite a single one, it wouldn't be you know diagnosing uh, diagnosing uh, breast cancer uh, CT scans, for example. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So I suppose what you're saying then, particularly at the start, about when you're talking about the investment journey, is that that kind of bouncing around and bruising and, and not being able to, to raise the seed round initially anyway mm. is twofold. And I kind of like that in the sense that the people, investors talk all the time, don't they, about, about people being coachable and people being able to have the humility and, and being humble enough to accept when they're wrong. And I think that's obviously what you've done just there is said that they're in part they were right. I was going after a market that didn't really exist. I said that it was this. It was, in fact, the care homes don't really pay for any of the stuff. They don't have the incentives, the rest of it. But at the same time, the, there are obviously non-domain experts in, in investing, particularly in health tech. And I think health tech has always needed this level of, of knowledge of the ground floor in order to, to have successful investments. And actually, by successful investments, I kind of mean that two, twofold. Yes, financially, there is an amount of knowledge that is needed about venture and about investing and about taking companies to IPO and raising big rounds and all the rest of it and creating that value. I get that. I understand that. But we in health tech live behind or inside this black box of things that go on. And I know one of your investors um, is obviously from a healthcare background. Mm. I'm interested in, I suppose, the, the, the difference between that investment meeting compared to others. 
yeah, I mean, um, you know, like, like night and day. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, um, talking to a, some talking to an ambassador that is actually a doctor and also ha already has a portfolio portfolio of medtech investments. And, you know, it's a very different experience from talking to um, a general investor. Um, and you can you can have a very different kind of conversation, which I think is much more kind of rounded mm. and, sen and sensible, really, rather than sort of painting some huge sort of exciting picture, which is generally what needs to be done for a, a general investor. Um, you know, but so, so that's yeah. I think you know, if, having investors that are educated and, and experienced in that area is a is a great asset and, and a good place to focus i think you know if you're if you're looking at the array of the spectrum of investors that exist you know if it's a medtech company go and look for the companies that have got a portfolio of medtech investments those guys will know quite a lot about uh, about the sector probably uh, and certainly a lot more than uh, than other uh, other guys and, and i guess you know from an investor's perspective you know they as, as as bill Lau, one of our other sort of investors once said to me um, when, when you're talking to an investor, right, remember, he is scared. He is scared that you're going to take his money and lose it. Mm. Right? And, and the point of your conversation is to turn his fear into greed. Mm. <laughs> That's kind of, I don't, maybe it's a bit of an oversimplification, but it's kind of, it's kind of true, right? And, and if people don't understand what you're doing, it's very hard for them to not be scared, right? Because if, if they can't get their head around what you're, you're up to, then they, it's a just it's a total punt, right? Whereas with you know when we talk to Fiona Patharaja or our investor, you know she very rapidly just as you as you and I do, you know you may you're not a dermatologist, but you could have, have when you have a com a conversation with a dermatologist, you could very rapidly understand pretty much any sort of clinical issue that he wanted to explain to you very quickly. Yeah. Whereas if you're not educated in that area, then it would take a lot longer. So there's just a kind of there's a there's a language. That, that you know that doctors and, and other people that work in the sector are fluent in that you know makes it makes the conversation a lot easier i actually think that the the investment world is going to move further and further towards this you know there's andrew elder you know ex-neurosurgeon at, at mm. albion there's visual galati mm. obviously a draper spirit that you know there's there's lot there's lots yeah. of these types of investors now that understand it and get it from a ground floor perspective, they can have that first meeting with you. Mm -hmm. And as you say, talk about, you know, brainstem stimulation and Parkinson's disease and tremor and, you know, uh, extra pyramidal effects. And they can just have that conversation and you can yeah, be, yeah. You, you, you can get, you know, 90% of the way there in the first 10 minutes rather than in 10 meetings. And I think that does make yeah. a huge difference to the speed at which even the sector is yeah. going to develop from. And I think, uh, I, I mean, I believe, you know, as these venture funds raise their next funds as of now, while digital health is really hot, I think people are going to look to more and more health tech functions of their funds. They're going to look to more and more experts. And I think the path for clinicians into investment is actually yeah. going to strengthen. I, I do really believe that. And there's, and there's loads, there's, there's uh, I, could, I could name loads that, that are moving from medicine out there, normally via management consultancy and an MBA and a few other different bits. Yeah. But as you say, but they have still worked on the ground floor. And I think it does make a huge difference to our sector that the right things will get the investment and drive everything forwards. I think that that really is going to change things, I hope. But I want to talk, I want to talk now, mate, about um, 
about your scale and about where you're selling this, what you're doing, like yeah. who are you helping? How have you found that journey? Because it's, it's all well and good yeah. having a, a cool tech idea about machines and humans and interactions. Mm-hmm. But uh, a lot of the work as we know is in getting this stuff actually yeah. bought and adopted to talk me through that journey. Mate. Yeah, no, sure. You know, when I think about how simple our sort of business model is now and how long it took us <laughs> to get there, it kind of almost makes me want to cry. But basically we have a, we have a, 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 a simple model now. So we provide our platform to non-profit and non-commercial entities like uh, uh, the NHS hospitals or hospitals in the USA that are they're typically non-profit um, entities. Um, uh, we provide, we provide our, our, our product Kelvin PD to them for free in exchange for their data, right? If they want to, they're allowed to pay for it, but they can actually pay for it just by allowing us to have access to their data. And every single one that we uh, currently have um, a, a sort of relationship with is we have a, a thing called Partners Program that we put them on. Um, every single one has uh, uh, decided to uh, share their data with us. Um, partly for a sort of you know pragmatic kind of as it were you know selfish reasons we don't want to shell out but but also because um, they understand as sort of scientists and clinicians in this area that by pooling data across multiple different sites we'll achieve a, you know a data set that's that's much uh, greater than anything else that's previously been achieved and be able, and will generalize a lot better so that's how we get that's how we get our data but then we're able to take that data and we're able to sell the product to people that are doing uh, for example, clinical trials in Parkinson's disease um, as a uh, as a software as a service, as a SaaS product, and there we charge them, uh, you know, a, a volume of usage so per assessment that they do, and that's uh, and that that's our current kind of market. That's what I would call our beachhead market. Simple, mate. Was that not was that not the case from day one? Surely. I mean, people said to us, you know, <laughs> what are you doing, giving your product away to the doctors? You know, that's nuts. You need to charge them something. So we went around and tried to get uh, you know doctors to uh, to pay us you know, whatever fifty pounds a month or something. I think we asked them for. Most of them said no, and you know even if some ones yeah. said yes, it would take you know twelve months to get it all approved by uh, you know the, the departments of finance or whatever. There was one uh, place in the USA, I think UCSF, who just said yeah, no problem, and started sending us checks. <laughs> so, that was it. That was it. And so that was happy days. Said, and then also we found that, you know, with, with, then if they were like those guys, once they were paying, they were like, well, what are we, what are we doing sharing our data with you then? You know, we don't want to, we, if we've got to pay for this, we don't want to, we don't want you using our data. Interesting, yeah. so, so then we couldn't do, we, we're losing, we're having our hands tied with our, uh, with what we could do with our data. Right. And whereas, whereas when you look at the commercial guys, they're paranoid about their data. They do not want their data shared with anybody, not you, not, not certainly not their competitors. So that, we're, and they're very happy to pay. So you know that was a uh, that was a that was quite a while to it took us to learn to that that was the way to, to do this. And and, and and the other thing is you know the, the, the data is really our defensibility, right? Because nobody else nobody else yeah. is data in the same way, and uh, and at the same at the same scale. So it's it's actually what uh, stops us from being sort of rapidly um, imitated by somebody. It sounds very transparent and that's what I quite like. You know, you opened with the fact that we give the platform away in exchange for the data, which obviously will be anonymized and all the rest of it. But the point is, is that it's a very transparent value exchange, like very transparent value exchange. And I, I, I think that that's quite refreshing in a way that you're not trying to sell something on the cheap 
but then the real values in the data and you guys know that and you're trying to convince anybody you know it's, it's not that you're, you're you're seemingly very upfront with what you're actually doing why you're actually doing it and on that basis seemingly have onboarded quite a lot of people by the sounds of things in both the uk and the us which must have been quite challenging yeah i mean we have that we've done well in the uk and the us you know where it's been more challenging and i think this maybe speaks to a deeper problem with the kind of the european tech tech sector is in, in, in we haven't had much progress with um with european kind of uh, you know clinics dds clinics in particular taking it and one of the i think we're, we're starting to get more progress now but they're much more kind of paranoid about about sharing their data, and I think yeah. you can see with we 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 were keen to work in Europe as much as the USA and, and the UK, uh, you know, uh, beforehand. But just kind of you know, maybe there's there's an element of of that sort of caution, kind of you know, being a little over cautious. I wonder in the, in the EU sometimes. Mm. And I suppose what would you what would you say to that? So for the there are obviously going to be people listening, perhaps from Europe. I mean, plenty of people listening to this podcast that that might have those concerns around the data. I and mean, what what is your I suppose response to that in terms of what are you guys doing with it? What what is the future of what you're doing, and why is that so important for you to have that data? What yeah, what would you say to those people essentially? I would say I would say that we need we need to make sure that we're not putting the cart before the horse. I mean. The, the whole the whole point of all of these activities is supposed to be supposed to be a patient benefit and, and and very often I think the conversation starts from kind of like you know ownership of data and not the consideration of interesting patient benefit of course you know sensible precautions around privacy and nobody you know especially if you've got some kind of sensitive diagnosis but even if you don't nobody wants their medical record in public of course all that goes without saying but I think you know when you look at what happened with the um, with uh, you know DeepMind doing work at uh, at the Royal Free, and you know being there was huge sort of outrage, I think largely in the media rather than in patient groups, uh, about Google being given access to this uh, patient data, most of which I think was blood results, um, and, uh, and you know what this is outrageous. What are we doing? Giving allowing Google to make money, and they haven't even you know pr- produced a, a, a chargeable product at this point. Yeah, um, but that was kind of that was where the the center of gravity. It's not that those issues aren't important and, and don't need to be considered. It's the, the center of gravity of the debate was about that, not about well, how could this this data, which is currently just sitting kind of fallow, you know, it's been we've got some. If you think about DeepMind, the number of PhDs that they've got from from Stanford and Cambridge, and you know, there's some of the smartest guys on the planet being put to work on this data to see if we can do something beneficial for patients. It's like. That, to my mind, that should have been where the centre of gravity of the debate was, and uh, and so I'd say you know we have to we have to be careful careful that we don't you know miss the wood for the trees. Yeah, and you mentioned the phrase there. You know, it goes without saying a couple of times, and and it kind of and it does for us because we've got that background and because we've come from that world of evidence based practice and we've treated patients and we've seen those things and done those things it does go without saying for us i think what is interesting i suppose is that i don't know if you're the same man but since leaving medicine i've i've really i've really seen how the world is driven commercially i've seen in in, at times uncomfortable amounts of power and where it actually sits and what is behind it and in terms of money and in terms of in, in terms of 
it really does make the world go around in certain places. And I think I remember, you know, being very fortunate actually now when I look back to, to, to be shielded from that quite a lot as a, as a ground floor clinician. And that's not just, I'm not trying to be patronizing there to say that people don't understand this or know this stuff at all. I guess yeah. it's just different when you enter the world of business and you start dealing in the num in, in the numbers of, of, you know, financing rounds and, and those things. And, and you see where, where, where the power actually sits. And, and I completely agree with you. I get frustrated because things do go without saying, and sometimes I don't say them and I get called up for saying, you know, you know, sometimes I'll write Forbes articles or I'll do something where people will, will get in touch like angry that they think I'm trying to sell advocate for selling NHS data and stuff like that. And it's like, no, I just obviously haven't said that privacy is the number one thing just because it does kind of go without saying to me, but I, I completely understand where you're from. And I think, you know, coming from, because I think we're both driven by the same things, which is impact. And I think I would probably say every single guest I've had on this podcast, we've almost come around to this is that for impact driven people, that is the thing that gets them up in the morning. And it seems that way for you too. And yeah. it, we just, we just have to say it a bit more <laughs> or declare things a bit more because things do go without saying, but yeah. what, what's the, what's the future for you guys, man? What, what are you looking to achieve with this? Are you looking to expand into other, other areas, other disease processes, cl clinical pathways? Are you looking to go deep where you are in neurology and Parkinson's? What What are you guys looking to do? I think, you know, I think the, for, certainly for central nervous system disease, and, and I think for actually many other uh, forms of disease, such as inflammatory disease, for example, neuromodulation has got absolutely colossal uh, contributions to make. Yeah, we, we've hardly scratched the surface. Completely I think agree. It's the most exciting area in in, in medicine. We, you know, our bodies are electrochemical um, entities, and the whole history of the pharmacology has been focused on the on the chemical side of that. And there is another world uh, being opened in terms of the electrical side of it. So I think the electrochemical is is just you know it's, it, this this nexus is just the most interesting and most impactful place uh, to be in terms of, of, of med tech over the next um, uh, over the next uh, sort of twenty years and that's what I, that's what I hope to take machine medicine into and I would also say that that that, that um, it's gonna it's all gonna be about software just as we've seen the standardization of, of hardware and uh, and the majority not all of it but the majority of the value in the value chain. Uh, move into software in, in you know our computers and, and that kind of thing. We, I think one of the exciting things in neuromodulation we'll see exactly the same thing. And um, and if that's true, then you know my ambition for machine medicine is for machine medicine to be the the Amazon of that of that sort of uh, software revolution in uh, in, in therapeutics. So we'll see if <laughs> I manage to achieve anything close to it. <laughs> i love it buddy so listen it has been an absolute pleasure having you on i thoroughly enjoyed this chat from philosophy to leaving medicine to <laughs> building businesses and, and neuromodulation and and everything that we talked about i've thoroughly enjoyed it buddy if people want to get in touch with you what's the or machine medicine what is the best way for them to, to get hold of you go to our website machinemedicine.com and we have contact emails and stuff or just drop me an email at jonathan.machinemedicine.com amazing amazing and finally any asks of our audience my friend no only you know if you're if you're a, a phd or, or something or a, a competent um, engineer and you want to do something that actually matters not get people to click on advertising and stuff then 
you know, please do get in touch. We're always keen to speak to ambitious, smart uh, young people or, or even middle-aged people that want to uh, contribute to this. Perfect. Cheers, Jonathan. Thanks a lot, James. Bye now. Hey everyone, thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.